The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What's good, y'all? My name is Chris Milam, and I'm a songer, singwriter from Memphis, Tennessee. I am joined in the studio today by the rested, the vested, the barrel-chested producer, Gil. Let me tell you what Gil's been up to lately. He has been decorating the studio. We had some folks move out. We had some folks move in. We're rearranging some furniture. Every time I come in here, it's a little bit different. This morning, we've got black lights. We've got velvet artwork. We've got Pantera posters. There's a terrarium. Today's show is sponsored by Spencer's Gift. You are listening to The Mix. It's an hour-long conversation with fellow artists where I ask one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? My guest today is artist Liz Brazier, and we'll get to her as soon as possible. But first, what do I see on the merch table? It is one thing and one thing only. October 20th. Bookmark it. Put it in your calendar. October 20th, we are taping a live episode, and the guest is you. Here's what we need you to do. Uh, Number one, I want you to send me the title of the song that means the most to you. You can email me, chris at chrismilam.com, or find me on social media. I'm easy to find. And just shoot me an artist and a song title, what song means the most to you. Feel free to tell me why. Usually the why is even more interesting than the what. Number two, you can join us in person if you live in Memphis. Uh, Our studio is in Crosstown Concourse. We are taping at 4 p.m. Central Time. And if you would like to be in our live studio audience, just reach out to me and uh, we'll see what we can do. Everyone else can stream it live. That is on concertwindow.com slash Chris Milam. You can join the fray that way. Wherever you are, you can find us. Concertwindow.com slash Chris Milam. October 20th, 4 p.m. Central. Oh my God, I lied, dude. There's one more thing on the merch table and it is a fresh and ready ad read. I always say the best song is a book of song. That's why this mix is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30 day free trial at audibletrial.com slash OAM. Over 19 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. 19 titles. Grab them all. Now, uh, typically this is the part in the show where I talk about the guest, and I am going to talk about Liz Brazier here very briefly, but um, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I wanted to give a little context to the conversation you're about to hear. It's been a hard week. My dad passed on Sunday, September 22nd. He battled cancer for two years before starting hospice care. Three weeks later, he was gone. My dad was an extraordinary person. He was an academic from Appalachia, so he was hyper smart, but never snobby. He was a teacher and a scholar who talked about John Milton and George Jones with equal affection. Music was a passion that we shared. Uh, When dad and I talked about songs, it was a way to understand each other. Episode one's guest, uh, Steve Selvage, uh, recently bumped into him and he asked me how I got good at this, uh, meaning hosting the show. 
And that's really kind of him to ask. Um, if I am good at this, it's because I've had a lifetime of practice watching both of my parents talk about shared passions with insight and curiosity and generosity. Dad and I once had a whole conversation about just the opening snare hit of Like a Rolling Stone. Just one second of music was an entire conversation. He said that uh, he liked the new Green Day single before I even knew it existed a couple weeks ago. Um, we talked about how uh, the perfect irony of Boulder to Birmingham by Emmylou Harris, uh, one of the greatest love songs of all time. Uh, it actually begins with the line, I don't want to hear a love song. Um, we talked about the relentless weirdness of Elvis's singing. He mentioned to me that he had liked and resonated with the paradise lost imagery in my song, Dark in the Garden. I guarantee no one else on earth had listened to it that closely. He believed in me and my music before I did. I'm going to miss talking to dad about songs. And that's why this show is so important to me. And that's why this conversation with Liz Brazier was such a joy. Liz Brazier is a force. Half Dominican, half Italian, recent Memphian. Liz's music is as eclectic as her background. Her voice alone would earn her attention. It's soulful, dexterous, incredibly powerful. But she's also a multi-instrumentalist, a fearsome guitar player, an accomplished songwriter. In her two releases, Liz synthesizes soul, blues, garage rock, and Latin influences into something distinctly her own. Like her music, Liz is full of spirit, generosity, honesty. I walked into the studio feeling pretty low. Liz immediately disarmed me. As you'll hear, I'm having a blast in our conversation. The first time all week I felt at home connecting with someone over a song and a shared passion. A little closer to my dad. Thanks so much to Liz for being the absolute perfect guest at the perfect time. And to every single one of you who have joined the conversation this season. There's going to be a bonus episode, episode 11, and then episode 2, or episode 12, wherein the guest is you. And that'll be season one of The Mixed. We'll be back in 2020 for more. Uh, one final note, as always, you can listen to Liz's full playlist on Spotify. That link and the full track list are also in this episode's liner notes. Here's The Mix, Liz Brazier. Well, it's my pleasure to be joined in the studio today by Liz Brazier. Liz, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, was it a late night last night with the Recording Academy? You know, not too late, but uh, just the right amount of time to get in and get out. <laughs> Memphis Recording <laughs> Academy is slacking. My memory of those parties is that they end at like dawn. We were like wine drunk one hour in. It was over. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> just empty out the bar immediately. Well, Liz, this is uh, the last proper episode of the season, and uh, I'm so excited about your mix. As soon as I was reading it, I had a couple thoughts, um, because... Listeners know that I ask the guests to send, you know, maybe about 10, 12 songs that mean the most to them. And then I also ask them to kind of star like a handful that they definitely want to hit in the hour. And while every guest mix has been eclectic to a degree, typically what they star is pretty cohesive. It's like kind of different shades of the same color. Um, yours was not. <laughs> we got Mahalia Jackson, 
and Iron Maiden, like right out of the gate. As we should. And I actually said out loud when I read that, fuck yes. yes. So I can't wait. Um, Let's go ahead and start with Mahalia Jackson's Elijah Rock. Let's do it. Elijah Rock, shout, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, come Elijah Rock, shout, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, come now, what was your introduction to this song? This is a traditional spiritual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I went through a period when I was living in Chicago where uh, I was really confronted with like my lack of Southern music history knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, tracing everything back from like the Delta Blues to like early black gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I fell in love with like the staple singers. And um, Mahalia was definitely a part of that because you can't be a vocalist and not revere Mahalia Jackson as like the greatest vocalist of all time, you know? Um, So yeah, I just started listening to her and collecting as many of her records as possible. But then I got on like YouTube Mm -hmm. to watch a ton of her videos. And there's this like live version of Elijah Rock where like her wig is just like flying, (laughs) sweats like dripping everywhere. She's in this phenomenal dress as always. And it was just so powerful to me to hear this song. And she always had like a very minimal um, live band arrangement set up. So, you know, just piano. Usually she would travel with. Her voice was that powerful. Um, So anyways, I just I started thinking about whether or not I could do that song. Mm -hmm. And now that song ends every single one of my sets and like people flip. Yeah. Night after night. They're like, what's that song? Is it on your record? I'm like, no, it's not on my freaking record. (laughs) But it's so powerful. And um, yeah, so that was really my introduction to that song. And I'm like obsessed with it. It's like my all time favorite song. Did you grow up going to church? I grew up, yeah, strictly going to church. Like from the time I was born, we were in church all week long rehearsing, singing. It's a Spanish-speaking church, by the way. Is this in North Carolina? North Carolina. Southern Baptist, Spanish-speaking. Wow. Yeah. What town? Uh, Matthews, North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte. Okay, so I'm picturing a pretty small congregation. Yeah, very small. Okay. Very close-knit, too, because this is like the 90s. Okay. Immigrants weren't really a thing in Charlotte, North Carolina. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So my family kind of like trailblazed that. Um, but yeah, and so it was constant rehearsing for the church and televangelist TV shows, like as a little kid that oh, I would have wow. to go on, take little solos and stuff. Oh my gosh. So that was my intro. So to me, gospel is like very, um, very root driven to my life. Right. Yeah. So you were singing kind of traditional gospel then? Yeah. Well, it was more hymns okay. and, um, like contemporary Spanish songs than anything. So I, I actually didn't grow up with a lot of um, like the black cultures, gospel music. Right. And that's what I loved. And that's what I sounded like mm. in the church. So I was always this weird anomaly. And, you know, they would ask me like, why do you sound like a black woman? I'm like, I don't, this is the voice God <laughs> gave me. I don't know. I don't fucking know, you know? So, um, so yeah. Were you singing in Spanish? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, completely insane. At what age did you start? From the time I was a baby, because my mom is, so my family's from the Dominican Republic. Okay. I'm first generation U.S. Um, and my mom is one of nine siblings. Oh, wow. They all sing. 
yeah. really well. And they're, they're constantly singing. So we grew up, me and all my cousins around that okay. with, with them like training us and us singing. I'm so together. jealous of this. It's the opposite of my house. Great music fans, but nobody played anything. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Um, so, okay. You have an extraordinary voice and I'm glad we're already talking about you as a singer and we're talking about Mahalia Jackson as a singer. I'm curious two things. One, you've kind of already spoken to, which is like, when did you start singing? So as a baby, as a almost. Baby, okay. Yeah. But two, when did you get to the point where you felt like you were singing the way that you wanted to? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think that came about until high school and yeah. this, somebody else that's on that list. That's really instrumental to me. And that is Amy Winehouse. Sure. Because she kind of like blew open those doors for me. Of course, there's like plenty of other examples, but I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music growing up. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So um, I kind of discovered everything a lot later or I had to sneak it in or friends would like make me mix CDs and I would like go to my closet to listen to the radio and things right. like that. Or I would like steal cars to go to shows. Just crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but in high school, I got asked to join bands. Okay. And because people knew that I could sing really well. Because I would do stuff like the national anthem or right. things like that. Um, and I was always just singing, you know. Um, my dad was a huge Motown and Beatles fan. Mm. Um, and Michael Jackson. So I had like those songs in the back of my head. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until like. I started joining those bands that I realized, oh no, I like, I have the freedom to be able to express myself how I want on this stage. Right. So I would say it was probably like middle school leading into high school. Cause actually now I remember doing, um, behind blue eyes. Do you remember that song? Sure, sure. Um, in a middle school, like talent showcase <laughs> with a friend on guitar. And I like, everybody was like, Oh, you know, and I felt like, okay, I can like, I could do this and it can be my own voice. I love the who, and I don't mean to drag them when I say this, but that is the who song that would definitely play well to a high, to a crowd of middle school <laughs> middle kids. Schoolers, it did. <laughs> like, mm, really in my feelings right now. Well, and it was also the time where, do you remember like Fred Durst had like, or maybe it was Limp right, Biscuit right. or just Fred Durst had covered it. God, I'd black that out. Yeah. Yeah. You totally should have. And I'm kind of embarrassed that I'm even bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it got put back on my radar sure. at that time because Halle Berry was in the music video and right. stuff and it was this super raunchy thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was capitalizing on that too. Halle Berry was in that video. That's why I blacked it out. <laughs> that's like putting Helen of Troy in a sewer. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about let's Amy Winehouse uh, since, you, since you brought her up. So the song that you have on the mix is You Know I'm No Good. This is off Back to Black. Came out in 2006. I cheated myself Why this song off this album? I'm curious. Man, I know this song, like every word to this song, I can sing it just like Amy. It's really embarrassing. But I don't know. I feel like this song, more than any other song on that record, is 100% her. Like when you listen yeah. to the lyrics. And it's sad um, in a lot of ways. You know, her life was very sad. But um, I think also it's just her not giving a fuck. And that's kind of how I want to be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And it's just a really good song. Like, incredibly good song. Yeah. The production, you know, with between Mark Ronson and, like, the Daptones guys and all that. It's right. like, they hit it at the right time with her. 
that album was a jolt to the system when it came out. I mean, it's still one of my favorite albums of the century, I yeah, would say. I mean, same. it's one that I just put on often when I don't know what else I want to listen to. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm constantly playing that record in the green room, like before I go out to, to perform, that song is playing. I'm like, yeah, I want to feel like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you went from not being allowed to hear secular music to, I mean, does it get more secular than <laughs> Amy Winehouse? I mean, I don't know. No, I don't think so. You know, a Jewish North London. I don't even know where she's Cambridge, I think, is where she's from. She was actually from Akron. I think the whole oh, thing was, was an act. Yeah, it was just an act. <laughs> the tattoos are fake. <laughs> um, how would you say she influenced you as a songwriter? Um, I think she just reminded me to um, be authentic because she was very much that way. You know, you could see that when uh, when she didn't want to be approached by people. She right. was very obvious about that. I don't know if I can ever be like that with anyone, but you know, I respect her for that. Um, also she was like unafraid to just put her feelings in her life to make them very vulnerable for everyone. And I feel like until we as songwriters do that, like we don't connect with people. So to me, that's what her, and also like all the Delta blues people that I mentioned, like that's what they did early on. It wasn't this like, you know, the fake white boy blues that we hear today sure. pretending like your life is horrible. No, it's like, this was real to those people. Right. And same with those gospel songs, you know? So right. they all kind of tie back to that for me. What, what else we, uh, I said that this is an album that I put on when I don't know what I want to listen to sometimes. What else would fall into that category for you? Oh man. So many things. Um, this one's weird, but the Beatles one album. So it's like all their number one hits. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was like one of the only CDs that I had very early on of the Beatles. Cause it didn't get into weird Beatles territory. So my mom was okay with it. I see. Um, so I have that memorized also like the back of my hand. Um, Let's see what else. Uh, Bobby Blue Bland's California record is just like a coasting, creative, awesome feel the whole way through. I love it. God, I haven't heard that in a really long time, I think. It's so good. Every summer I want to listen to it. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Beatles one because, I mean, the Beatles have always been my favorite band. Like, they're the center piece for everything. Thank you. But um, I do, like... I listen to the album so much that once in a while I'll revisit one and go like, oh, I haven't heard the Ballad of John and Yoko in nine months. <laughs> yeah, like, right. That was a number one hit for them, and like I forgot it existed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, because they had they just had singles to spare. Right, exactly. Or to go, I love going back to like the early Beatles too. So like to listen to stuff like it's been a hard oh, day's yeah. night, you know. I want to hold your hand. I mean, I. Those songs were my entry point to music. Like that's yeah, when I felt me in love too. With it. Yeah. That's why I feel like I can write songs. Is without the Beatles, I wouldn't be able to write. Period. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, the Beatles and Bob Dylan to me are everything in writing. Oh wow! Um, listeners might think that I'm feeding her these lines, and I promise <laughs> I'm not. Uh, yeah, I mean the, those are those are the two giants for me too. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about Bob Dylan. You have on your mix. Uh, Dark Eyes, this is off Empire Burlesque, came out in 1985. But I feel nothing for that game where beauty goes on a lake ignite. All I feel is heat and flame, and all I see 
You have a lot of songs on your mix that are actually instrumental pieces, and I want to ask you about that yeah. uh, in a bit. But those songs are without words. This is a song built around words, as so many Dylan pieces are. Um, what is it about this one that resonates so much? So this song, to me, it just doesn't even sound like a Dylan song. Mm. And I love when he does that. Um, there's another song on the Whitmark demos um, called When the Ship Comes In. That's very. It was hard for me to choose between these two. Uh, I have so many top Dylan songs, but those are definitely up there. Um, this song to me is just like so poetic mm. and not in a weird, bizarre way. It's like beautifully dark right? and um, very bare. And there's actually a really good uh, live video of him and Patti Smith doing it together. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. That video makes me want them to be a couple <laughs> so bad because the whole time you're watching, you're like, they're going to make out right now. They're going to make out. They're going to make, no, they don't. But oh, it's man. like the tension is there the whole time while they're singing this song together. And it's just so beautiful. But um, yeah, I think that's why that song speaks to me more than anything is it's just Dylan being like, hey. I can do this if right. I want to do this, which he always does. What does the song evoke in you? I'm, some of the lyrics are, the lyrics can be interpreted a lot of different ways. So I'm yeah. curious where you take them. To me, um, that song is a very lonely yeah. song. So it, it puts me in that headspace of just um, being alone, being in like, which I don't know. I don't know if he was writing from this place or not, but I envision Dylan like, you know, going all around the world and, being surrounded by so many people and being in so many cool places. But at the end of the day or while he's sitting at a cafe observing people still feeling like he's by himself because right. it's always him and his thoughts and his songs. I can very much relate to that. I think all of us can, sure. you know? So that's what I take from it. Yeah. I've always been confused by um, even staunch Dylan fans or uh, critics who find him to be inscrutable. Of course, he's He's literally worn masks over the years, varying degrees. And like, it's, you know, you never know who the real Bob Dylan is. Um, I actually think the real Bob Dylan is pretty easy to find in, in the music itself. Yeah. It's everywhere else that you're kind of, he's, he's putting on a mask, so to speak. And I think this song is, that's the way I hear this song too, that, is yeah. um, him really letting you into uh, his interiority and feeling kind of isolated in a crowd. Yeah, line. totally. That's what I love about <laughs> Dylan, though, is that he has this like mysterious appeal to people, but I don't think he's that mysterious at all. Right. Like you were saying, because if you go to the songs, you can get who he is. Yeah, I don't think that you can deliver those kinds of songs without it really speaking to some truth exactly. inside of you. Um, I want to ask you about an instrumental piece. Yeah, I love instrumentals. And I didn't put Booker T and the MGs on this list because I'm like, we're in Memphis. It's been done, but they should also be here. They sure. Um, they've made a couple appearances See? on the season, so yeah, they've been well represented. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the Ventures. Walk, don't run. Yes, uh, I love the Ventures. <laughs> so this is one that you starred. <laughs> What is it about this? Oh this my piece? gosh. What isn't it about this song? Yeah. Like, you know, classic surf yeah. instrumental. But I mean, I could have put any Ventures song on this list and I would have felt the exact same because to me, it's just remarkable that bands were, well, a band like the Ventures 
actually just the ventures in the beginning were able to have massive hits mm. without any words, any vocals. Right. And that's because their melodies were so strong in the guitars, right. you know, and what they were playing. They were like a tight working unit. Um, that sounded so good, but also they took that very seriously in the songwriting. So I listened to it and it sounds like it's a vocal line. You know, I take a lot of guitar of my guitar playing from the ventures mm -hmm. <clears throat> and was actually just in a ventures documentary about them because of that. Like they're my end all be all when it comes to instrumentals. And I, I put instrumentals in every set to like allude back to them or Booker T and the MGs, you know, are a lot of these instrumental bands that meant a lot to me. But I, I think it's difficult to do that, to not just jam all day right. and to actually formulate a song right. with parts. And they were masters at doing that and making hit records right. off of that. And they just looked cool. Like their <laughs> gear was cool. Yeah. Their outfits were cool. Their song sounded good. I didn't tone. realize that they're the best-selling instrumental band of all time. Absolutely. They started in 1958 and I guess are still kind of active to yeah. the day. So, I mean, 60 plus years. Yeah. I was actually, uh, last year when we were on the West Coast um, and we were opening for the Zombies, we were in Seattle and it was the last show of the run. And um, I went out to the merch table to do my merch slinging. And this guy came up to me and he's like, Liz, my sister uh, just had you on the documentary about our dad's band. I'm like, hold on, <laughs> hold on. And sure enough, it was one of the Ventures um, oh, sons. Wow. And he had like a Ventures pick and all this stuff to give to me. It was really cool. But um, yeah, they're still going. And he, I think he plays guitar with them too. So it's incredible to hear that. What is it about a piece of music that'll typically grab you first? I mean, you said with instrumentals, Sometimes if, if a guitar melody is as catchy as like the vocal melody might be, um, just in, in general, when you're hearing a piece of music, what typically grabs you first? I mean, in general, it has to be a groove. There has yeah. to be a rhythm. I think the Dylan song is like an exception, obviously, right. when it's like more stripped down acoustic bare. Um, but generally it's got to like move either a walking beat or like a beat that you want to dance to, you right. know, I, groove is everything to me. The rhythm is everything. And then of course the melody, mm -hmm. like. That sucks me in. And then lyrics too. So it just fluctuates, but I think groove more than anything. Right. There was a, there's a fair amount of your recorded work that where the drum actually starts. Yes. The, the track. I so yeah, I can, I can definitely hear that influence. Um, I actually wanted to go from the ventures to another uh, instrumental track since as long as we're talking about groove. Yeah. The what meters, oh, sissy strut. Yes. <laughs> Lord. This is one of the best drum performances I've heard in a long time. Zigaboo you cannot be topped at yeah. all. Like I, I've tried so many times to just break down what he does on drums, like in the most simplest way and try to do it. And I can't because it's so, it blows my mind how he plays drums. It's not traditional. Right. It's, I think it's called like linear or nonlinear. I can't remember because I'm uh, not a drummer. Okay. But it's a totally different style of playing where okay. it's not like... Dum, dum, like you're right. keeping the rhythm. No, it's like all over the place, you know, but he's somehow they know where they're at and it's right. the funkiest shit on earth. You cannot get funkier than that. Oh, that's, 
I I had a blast listening back to this song. Um, I would say that the drum parts, as much as any parts of the song, are the hooks. The, yeah. the, his drumming is catchy yeah. on this song. In addition to just being like just really wild and unconventional, and and still like super super tight and in the pocket. Um, his his drum bits are catchy. They're hooks. They are. And you know we come from a Memphis music tradition, especially in the rhythm section, where typically you feel the rhythm section more than you're hearing it which is great too and i appreciate but i love beatles yeah. stuff or nirvana stuff where the drum parts are catchy too yeah um they're very musical exactly so like this one really caught my ear i had a blast listening to it yeah The Mix is also brought to you by our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. Open seven days a week at 1916 Madison Avenue in the heart of Midtown Memphis. Shangri-La recently celebrated 30 years of slinging music from Memphis, the Delta region, and beyond. The shop is stacked with killer records from classic labels like Stack, Sun, High, Chess, Motown, Atlantic, and Blue Note, to modern indie labels like Secretly Canadian, Matador, Bat Possum, Light in the Attic, Third Man, and many more. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or shop online and sign up for the store newsletter at shangri.com to keep up with events and sales. Have an idea for a podcast or a live talk show? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your show. Now back to the mix. While we're talking about stacks adjacent things let's go ahead and dive into otis redding free me this came out in 1969 and i'm fascinated i'm fascinated by this song um what is it about this one that means so much to you so um this song actually kick-started the first song that I ever wrote, oh, wow. uh, okay. like officially wrote, um, that wasn't like a piece of crap. And it's my song, Cold Baby. I oh, yeah. wrote it immediately after listening to this song. Wow. So I was in Chicago. It's freezing. I'm depressed, miserable there. Had just picked up a guitar. I put this record on and I hear this song and he's just like right off the gate begging to be freed. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa that's exactly how I feel right now. Mm. And it was like, I had to stop that song to write this other song. And in my opinion, Cold Baby is a classic song and um, it wouldn't have come to me without that song, without Otis's. So that's that's why that song means so much to me. I got you. Um, I can definitely hear the connection now that you mention it. Yeah. That's, I let the cat out of the bag with that. (laughs) No, that's great. Um, do you hear this song? Is there a is there a catharsis in this song when you hear it? Do you ever feel like he really gets the catharsis that he's looking for? I don't know. Yeah, because it's an interesting notice writing track and kind of unconventional and yeah. in some ways because it really has this. It almost does like the quiet, loud, quiet, loud, quiet thing that like a lot of grunge did. Yeah. Did. Um, and it built, you know, it has this huge dynamic range, these big moments, and then it quiets down. Big moments, quiets down again. And 
in those big moments, typically you're like, oh, here's the freedom. Like a lot of other songwriters would be like, he's asking, he's saying, free me. And now the song opens up and we're free all of a sudden. But those seem even more tension filled. Right. To me. Exactly. That's why I love it. <laughs> yeah. There's so much tension in this song that to me is never really resolved. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes it uh, like really, it really sticks with you. And it's really spooky too yeah. when you think about his life. Right. Because um, I always, I don't know, for me, it's hard to just take songs away individually even though i know that's what we do we write songs and it's in the moment and you know we can forget about them or whatever but i feel like it's part of the bigger picture of his life which my i in my opinion was very much like that right you know so i don't know that's i'm like getting goosebumps right now just thinking about otis i always do it's also like 55 degrees in here. yeah that's probably why gil (laughs) gil's cold-blooded um I actually wanted to ask you about um, you, your process as a songwriter. When did you start writing songs? What age? Um, so, I mean, seriously, not until like about five years ago. Okay. But um, in high school, I maybe wrote like one or two. See, I, I never thought that I could write songs. That was always my issue. Even though I was like, I, I remember like being three or four years old and like taking a a big wooden spoon from the kitchen and pretending that it was a microphone and like coming up with songs about Disneyland and stuff. Um, it wasn't until like high school where I was going through, you know, like a lot of horrible shit that I felt I needed to write something. And I had like a little piano that I would, uh, that I maybe wrote two songs on, but even then I didn't think anything of it. And in college, I like messed around with garage band maybe and, um, figured a, a song or two out. But it wasn't until um, being in college in uh, Chicago that I just hit this ultimate point and I picked up the guitar because I figured if I wanted to write songs, I wanted a band to be there with me. And that was going to probably be the best instrument to be able to lead other people with. Right. Um, so that's really when I took it more seriously or when it just like opened up the floodgates. Because then as soon as I started writing, it just hasn't stopped. I see. Yeah. What was the first song that you thought was a good song that you were proud of? Cold Baby. That was it. That was it. And you just called it a classic song. I loved hearing that because so many uh, so many artists are either needlessly modest and self-deprecating or um, falsely modest yeah. and self-deprecating. Uh, so that's one that you're tremendously proud of. It stands up. I yeah, think you it know does. it holds up. I mean, if you like, if you don't like a soul ballad, then screw you. But. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> No, that's true. That you can put that song in 1965, or you can put that song in 2065. I think it'll work. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I th- well, I mean, we'll be long gone. Yeah, I know. But uh, someone somewhere. Speak for will yourself, be st- okay? I'm gonna still be here. <laughs> Not just make humans. Bionic woman. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll be gone. Obviously, we're um, killing ourselves as is. Well, Liz, as we're moving through your mix, I don't want to get any further without talking about Iron Maiden. Oh hell yes! You saved the best for last. Uh, <laughs> We're going to close the episode by talking about your song. Oh. So we'll actually save the best for last. Okay. But in the meantime, Hallowed Be Thy Name, this is off uh, The Number of the Beast, came out in 1982. Please tell me. How you got into Iron Maiden. Okay, so this is a very recent thing for me. Okay. Uh, 
so I've got I've got a bass player that's been playing with me for about three years now. His name is Todd Kerstetter. He lives in Atlanta, and um, Todd has been a great source for me of just different music that I've never been into. So like crazy avant-garde jazz mm-hmm. or, you know, like really cool jazz. Um, he's big into jazz, but he's also, he was a metalhead like back in the kiss introducing me to kiss, okay. you know, just like all these like rock bands that I miss. Cause of course I know like Zeppelin and right. you know, the Beatles I've got covered, but um, Iron Maiden was never on my radar because by the time I got into I don't know, like heavy rock or metal or hardcore, as we called it. Sure. It was all about the local bands. So that's who I was following and keeping up with. Okay. And um, I missed the whole Iron Maiden boat, which I I don't know. I feel like a lot of people my age probably did. Right. Especially women, because the more that I discover about Iron Maiden, the more that I've, I'm finding out it's like a male-dominated fan base. It's oh, crazy. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So he was like, he just kept telling me, he's like, man, you know, I keep hearing... All the stuff, because I take, I love like Jack White's guitar playing, obviously, mm. and um, I love the Kinks, so I take like a lot of fuzz tone from here and there, and have started working with a lot of Overdrive, um, and Van Halen, I've been studying more of to get their br- the brown sound stuff from Eddie, but Todd was just like, I really feel like if I just introduce you at the right time to Iron Maiden, that you're going to, you're going to love them. And sure enough, like, I heard this song and was like, oh my gosh, why have I gone my whole life without hearing this, yeah. first of all? And then proceeded to spend like the next month trying to play that song at that speed on the guitar, like oh, wow. obsessively. Did you get there? Oh yeah. yeah, I got there. I mean, my hands and my forearms are burning all the time <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it's so fast. It's So then when I had to break it down like that to study them, I realized how much of geniuses they were. First of all, to be able to play at that speed is like remarkable. And then secondly, you have to have such a huge classical music background to be able to come up with those parts. And the fact that the bass player is writing these songs was was blowing my mind. Right. I couldn't believe that. So I and I just loved hearing like the guitar harmonies going back and forth and um I mean, it might have taken me like a week after listening to the song to even focus on what the singer was saying, which is rare right. as a vocalist, right? Because right. I was just so enthralled by all the guitar work happening. So that's where I am. I'm in an, an Iron Maiden love fest right now. I love it. My uh, my introduction to all things metal was actually via a bass player too. So um, before I picked up guitar, I picked up bass. I was, you know probably 11 and suddenly everybody around me was either getting guitars or drums for their birthday. And I was like, well, if I play bass, I'll be in like 19 bands. bands. <laughs> and then everybody, uh, immediately, you know, their instruments started collecting dust and I was just a guy playing bass by myself. Oh, no. Um, but my teacher was very big into jazz. It, he might be the bass He's player Todd. in your, yeah, in your band. Todd um, was your teacher <laughs> in hindsight, but he was also like really big into classical music. And while he would try to get me into classical music, like, you know, middle school Chris wasn't necessarily that wasn't my speed and he was like he actually connected the dots he's like there's a lot that classical music has in common with metal and since you're you know 11 12 13 and just an angry young man maybe this can get you like thinking about music in that way where like you're setting up a musical theme and it has all these different movements and it's very technically yeah 
difficult to learn but once you get there like you really have a tool in your tool belt after a while um so yeah me and iron maiden go way back wow <laughs> i wish i would have had iron maiden back then i would be a much different liz i feel like <laughs> you would officially be the coolest person at the iron maiden show however that's true yeah yeah just you and a lot of sad dudes named doug i think <laughs> a lot of angry white guys yep yep, yep. that sounds right um well I definitely, I mean, the the whole mix is wonderful and uh, eclectic, but I know that we only have you for a little while. So before we go any further, I definitely want to make a point of closing the conversation by asking you about your song, Painted Image. Uh, this is the title track to yeah. your album, Painted, Painted Image. came out this year, 2019. No, no, I don't want to go with you. I'm going to go ahead and do a shameless plug for you. The whole album is remarkable and I've listened to it a lot this year and I'm Thank a fan. Um, but the title track is one that I definitely wanted to ask you about because it, it feels like an outlier mm -hmm. on the record. Um, do you remember where you were when you wrote this one? Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, and I, as you can tell from my list, I love outliers. Yep. I'm all about, you know, what's not like everything else. Uh, cause I'm all about diversity all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, this song, um, as most really important songs comes from like a dark place, you know, and, um, more than anything painted image, I think was like a declaration that people want to portray you as something. And that's something I've, I've struggled with my entire life, being mixed, being in the church, out of the church, you know, like this big jumble and combination of things. Um, they're constantly trying to do that, but we're more than the sum of what somebody thinks of us. So that's, that's really where um, I was coming from when I wrote that. And also, as I was um, making the record, you know, just thinking ahead to like, how media um, and really anybody out there in the music world can try to portray you in a certain way. But this was me saying like, that's, that's not who I am. Right. And I feel like I'm constantly saying that, but this song captures that the best because of how, um, I don't know, it's very like melancholy, yeah. I feel like. So I think it um, really drove that home. Well, it's, it's a fascinating song and I'm interested to hear you say that it feels like, you know, a, a distillation of who you are. Um, it, there's that Spanish influence guitar part. Um, what, what, what instrument is that? Is it? It's just a guitar. Yeah. Um, I, it was just me on an acoustic. Okay. And then, um, I think we had like, I played a 12 string, like to just strum some chords and then, um, uh, Jonathan Kirksky on sure. cello. And that was it. It's the most bare song on the whole record. Right. Yeah. Did you write it on guitar? I did. Yeah. yeah. It's dun, 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 dun. That's me on acoustic. Yeah. Okay. Just with the rhythm doing that. Mm -hmm. But that, that melody definitely feels Spanish in some way. Am I? No, you're totally right. And what's weird about that is that actually comes from um, my upbringing. Not that my family listened to any Spanish music, but a lot of the songs that we had to sing had these like 
Spanish rhythms that okay. they were actually taking from the Jewish culture. Oh, it's bizarre. It's weird. It's a big eclectic mix, but okay. yeah, that's where my ear for stuff like that comes from. Definitely. Where did you cut this record? Um, we cut it at Electrophonic with Scott Bomar. Got you. So beyond the song itself being fascinating, the the recording is really cool. Um, and I've got a lot of questions about it. So. Yeah. How did kind of the psychedelic elements come into it? So um, I think Scott and I are both very much fans of like 50s and 60s music. Mm. And psychedelic music is definitely a huge influence in a lot of what I do. But um, even going back before that, like I'm a big fan of Joe Meek Mm. and his um, production techniques and... Um, I think Scott is too. Scott has a lot of um, his own really cool influences as well. But we're, we both were like, this record should sound like big and cinematic and it should have like heavy reverb because I'm not afraid of that. Like right. I want it to take you somewhere else. Right. And I think you can do that with a lot of those elements. And of course, like he, you know, he worked his magic when I wasn't there and, and did some <laughs> stuff behind the scenes to, to make it the incredible record that it is today. <clears throat> Between your EP Outcast and this album, um, is it fair to say that it's easier to hear more kind of garage rock elements in Outcast as opposed to Painted Image? Yes, and that was actually intentional. Painted, okay. Painted Image was actually finished first. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, the issue was we thought, this is such a big record. If I'm a brand new artist coming out and this is what we come out with, you know, that was the fear that, um, it wouldn't be taken as seriously. And, um, and also like I needed to be out on the road. So my agents were like, okay, we kind of need music out there to get momentum going. So, uh, I had been, I'm always writing. So I had written tons of stuff since then. And we just went in and recorded a quick EP, like to have a better example of what a live representation of what we were doing. Cause I travel as a trio. I see. Um, every once in a while I'll have a big band with me, like here in Memphis or somewhere, but it's always trio based. And so we wanted something out there first, um, to be able to, you know, book me these different dates, uh, that sounded more like the live representation. So it has more energy and it, yeah, it definitely does have a more garage rock feel to it, but yeah, we came out with that first. Are you working on something new? Always. Yeah. Is it going to be more garage rocky? Uh, it's going to be really good. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. Well, um, I can't wait to hear it. And uh, Liz, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been a treat. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. Go get the young and it's cool. I will. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it, y'all. My name is Chris Milam and you can find me at Chris Milam or at Chris Milam Music on social media. Drop me a line, chris at chrismilam.com and tell me what song means the most to you. Thanks so much to Liz Brazier for being an absolutely perfect guest and our presenting sponsor, audible.com and our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. The mix is produced by the OAM Network in Memphis, Tennessee and is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.